Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of the 7investing.com podcast. Our mission here at 7investing is to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing a ton of free educational content like this uh, podcast and by offering a monthly subscription service where our team of advisors provides our seven best ideas in the stock market for $17 a month. If you're interested in the world of gaming, esports, or digital entertainment in general, and how investors can get exposure to those trends, then you're going to love our discussion today with my guest, our guest, Will Hershey from Roundhill Investments. Roundhill is, an, I believe, an innovator in the investment industry, and they're creating ways people can get exposure to what I view as being some of the most important trends of the future. Their tagline on Twitter is your vision, your ETFs. And if you want to learn more about Roundhill, then I highly suggest following at Roundhill on Twitter or checking out their website, roundhillinvestments.com. Um, they've got a bunch of resources there that we'll get into in the conversation. And I, I use their research and resources myself. But before I go any further, uh, Will, thank you so much for, for being here today. And I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and tell us more about what Roundhill Investments is and why it exists. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Austin. And uh, your intro was pretty spot on. So I don't know if I can even add anything add that much to it. But I'm Will Hershey, co-founder and CEO at Roundhill Investments. As you alluded to, we're a New York-based registered investment advisor focused on investing in secular trends and themes that younger people are passionate about that they believe in that we believe in really are going to drive the the future landscape of of kind of the global economy um for our first uh product as you kind of alluded to uh we launched our esports etf on the new york stock exchange ticker symbol nerd which we love because we're we're investing nerds gaming nerds it just works um, we're working on a couple more ETFs. So as you kind of, uh, as you kind of pointed out there, our tagline is your vision, your ETFs. We'd only have that one right now, but we're launching probably two more in the coming four to six weeks here, which is an exciting time for us. We're able to get stuff done even with, with everything that's going on in the world, but really at its core, our, our kind of philosophy, our mission, whatever you want to call it is, is, is what I mentioned at the beginning, which is putting out products that are differentiated, that are really interesting, that are kind of this Peter Lynch style of investing, but applied to a broader market than a single security. Um, the thought being, if you're new to investing, maybe maybe you're a gamer even, and you want to get into investing, I would say that probably the best thing to do isn't to jump in and, and try and make a bet on Activision Blizzard, even though that's been a great, that's been a great investment over the past you know, several years. Uh, it usually makes sense to start with an ETF uh, or a diversified product, learn from there. And, and really, we're trying to go after that audience that hasn't been necessarily investing forever, really a, a, a younger retail-focused audience. And I think that's very different from what most ETF providers in particular uh, are, are going after. So it's going to be focused on new and innovative trends, everything that we put out and focused on. Yeah, that's super interesting. So. Um... We'll get into this, I'm sure, as we cover kind of the industry and the trends and monetization and stuff like that. But the way you were, when you explained Roundhill and you talked about uh, maybe you're a gamer, popped into my mind. I was like, huh, 
I wonder if one day we'll see banner ads during streams of round hill ETFs or the nerd index or whatever to get to get gamers to see that. And um, it's an interesting, interesting idea. But yeah, I think it's so important for people. Uh, and that's why we created Seven Investing is to get people who aren't industry experts and don't have MBAs and all that stuff to get exposure to um, growing their wealth and investing. And so it's awesome that that you're you're taking this angle. And you better you better believe that we looked into that potential Twitch uh, advertisement. We've looked into it before. Yeah. Um, the only thing is Ninja. I think if you look at Ninja, for example, when he was back on Twitch, I think his average fan that was watching was like 12. They're just a little bit younger than our. Uh, I don't think they can open a, a Robinhood account quite yet. Yeah. Um, but no, that we're definitely trying to be innovative and go after very similar in terms of your mission. Yeah. And that's so interesting because because and we'll get into this more again, kind of getting ahead. But one of the things I've heard you talk about before is the trends in other sports, specifically like the MLB, where their demographic is an older, a much older demographic, which might not appeal to advertisers and stuff like that. But then in the gaming industry, it's almost the reverse, where it's like the demographic might be a little bit too young to where it's not as attractive to certain advertisers and certain revenue streams. So we'll get into all that stuff. Um, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to talk more about the nerd index and ETF. Um, so you have a you have a partner, Tim Maloney, who I thought he blocked me on Twitter because I was trying to find him and he wouldn't come up. And then he changed his name. His name, if you want to find Tim on Twitter, is Quintim Quarantino. And then he's <laughs> at Maloney Sandwich. Uh, and, and then Will, you're at maybe bullish. Um, I don't know if I said that before, but you're at maybe bullish on Twitter so people can find you there. Um, so why did you go with nerd as the first index and, and then what is so attractive? And this is kind of what we were already talking about, but what's so attractive about, um, the industry that, that the companies that are in the index are in, uh, that made you want to start with, with kind of gaming and digital entertainment? Yeah, so I think when you when you think about an ETF, a lot of people think about ETFs being used by advisors, being used by potentially institutions. But at their core, ETFs being traded on an exchange, I mean, it says it right there in the name, are direct-to-consumer products. Anyone on day one, the Robinhood, TD Ameritrade, Vanguard account can, can buy and sell them. Um, and, and that comes back to kind of our earlier vision here. Really, when we looked at markets that were growing really rapidly, that a lot of the attention was in the private markets. Um, esports and digital entertainment really was checking all of those boxes. And, and even more anecdotally, uh, back when we kind of got this whole thing started, and Roundhill is really a, is really a startup still, um, in kind of 2018, when we were getting the wheels in motion to launch this first product, Ninja and Drake were blowing up Twitch playing Fortnite. For those that don't know, they I think they hit 600,000 viewers at, at one point. Uh, Bob Kraft had just invested into uh, buying his own Overwatch team. Jeff Wilpon, too, with the Mets, was buying into his own Overwatch team. There was so much excitement in the private markets uh, around gaming and esports. And we said, look, it, 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 we, can, we can put together an index, a global index that tracks this industry, that gives people a way to play it. People who aren't accredited, who can't go in and invest into phase, phase clan series A um, and, and try and try and replicate uh, what we would kind of consider esports beta exposure 
as best as possible via public markets. Um, and in terms of in terms of what we're looking at, and 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 some of this might be might be you know kind of figures and data that people already know, but the gaming industry, 150 billion dollars globally, um, bigger than box office music industries combined, massive, growing 10% per year coming into this. I think it's going to accelerate into Q, you know Q1 numbers are fantastic. Q2 is going to be even better. We can talk about more about this later, but I think like what's going on with with quarantine and COVID-19 right now is really an acceleration of a secular trend rather than a, a, a short uptick. And I know you've been a proponent of Zoom that we're using right now. And I think, you know, work from home is, is you're kind of seeing a similar thing, in my opinion. It's an acceleration of a trend, not just the short uptick. Um, so large industry, 150 billion in terms of in terms of revenues. And that's the gaming industry. Esports, which is kind of the second derivative form of, of engaging with that content, it's watching other people play, is what I believe to be this kind of hitting at the core of what gaming is really becoming and what the future growth trends of it are. And that's kind of social gaming, online gaming, gaming as, as really kind of a platform for interacting with other people. And uh, when we look at the esports market, you're talking about, I, I see a lot of people quote 1 billion in, in the esports revenues. That's just not the right way to look at it. It's probably somewhere between 40 to 50 billion uh, in revenues. And that touches on everything from the actual games that are popular as esports. So League of Legends, uh, Call of Duty, Overwatch, um, to gaming hardware, as well as kind of, there, there's there's many different parts of this kind of pie that's that's really attacking the the trillion plus dollar entertainment market and it's it's the area that i think is most exciting yeah and and will i i think i first found round hill either through twitter or something um and then i looked on the on the site and found your investor presentation and you just kind of hit on some of these facts but one of the slides i'm looking at now is why esports and it's got um global gaming revenue so for anybody who just wants perspective uh, through 2020, I think it was estimated, or I don't know if this is, this is already, it can't be already required because it's estimated 166 billion and then 2021, 180 billion. So that's like massive, massive money and opportunity and market size that, that, uh, from an outsider's perspective, I didn't imagine it being, being that large. And then from an audience perspective for esports, you have, um, uh, and I think you got these. The source on here is Goldman Sachs uh, esports from Wild West to mainstream. So I, that must be a report they put out. But in 2020, uh, occasional viewers, I think 286 million, and then frequent viewers, 303 million. So just massive eyeballs and revenue dollars opportunity there. Yeah, and I think when you look at those numbers, both of them. So you're, like by 2022. You're talking about 600 million viewers. I don't know. The estimates are, it's very difficult, especially with what's going on, but some call it 170, 180 billion in revenues for gaming. Those numbers really surprise people because gaming is such a global industry that it's not, it's not totally US dominated like many other markets are. Um, you know, other big markets are China, Japan, Korea, Germany. Gaming is really a global industry. And I think because it's not all coming from U.S. domiciled companies, right? There's probably, I mean, there's only a handful of U.S. listed public companies that are that are focused on game publishing. This is really what we're in game development and publishing. I think investors maybe haven't been kind of 
they haven't been like taught to really consider this as more than something their kids play and like a real, real investment thesis. And I think for us, that was part of the opportunity too, was it just wasn't getting the, the love compared to the size and growth. There might be people listening to this who aren't exactly familiar with um, the difference in ETFs and an index. And, and on your site, it's listed, there's, there's the nerd index, but there's the nerd ETF. Can you just cover for those who aren't familiar kind of what the difference is between the, the ETF and the index? Sure. So ETFs come in multiple um, wrappers and strategies. Over the past few years, we've seen uh, active ETFs become more popular. Um, but traditionally, the way ETFs were built was ETFs were built to uh, have a passive investment strategy where they were tracking an index. And, and probably the best known ETF, I think it was launched in 1993 or 94 on the American Stock Exchange is SPY, right? Everyone knows SPY. It tracks the S&P 500. Um, you can't actually directly invest in an index. Oh, there's direct indexing now, but that's for another day. You can't actually directly invest in an index. The ETF, when you're talking about these passive products, um, is meant to track a benchmark. And this is I, I, this has kind of evolved over time. So it very much so used to be you'd go find, if you were an ETF issuer, would go find a well-known established benchmark, the Dow Jones, the S&P 500, the uh, financial sector, and license that from a third party and then track that with your ETF and charge an expense ratio. And you'd have to pay a licensing fee to the third party. What we're actually doing is utilizing what's called self-indexing. So we not only are the ETF provider, but we also wrote the rules and methodology that dictates the index. So it's a little bit different than what's historically been done, but um, clearly there was no esports and digital entertainment uh, benchmark coming out of the S&P companies uh, that we could have just kind of taken off the shelf. We view our role as index provider because really the, the ETF part is just tracking the index. The index yeah. is where the quote unquote decisions are made as index provider is providing beta exposure to interesting trends. And what I mean by beta exposure is, I'll use a few company examples that I think were, are always used when people talk about like the old school role of stockbrokers is, let's buy Pepsi and sell Coke. Um, that's not what we view our role as being. We view our role as identifying companies that are most tied to the growth in esports and digital entertainment weighting those appropriately in the basket and giving people that as a vehicle then to express their views, whether long, hopefully not short, but maybe short. Let's go into what actually makes up the, the nerd index. So I took the stat sheet from your website and I've got it, it posted here. So this is a test. We'll see how good you know it. Uh, no, I'm kidding. So it was launched <laughs> December 31st, 2018. That's the, the index. Yeah. That's the index. The, yeah, the, yeah, in the index, you passed the first part of the test. The index rebalances, <laughs> it rebalances quarterly. The index has 25 holdings. The median market capitalization of the index is 4.3 billion. And it has exposure to 11 countries. And so the, I guess, if you have anything to say on that, I'd love to hear it. But I think what has me interested, what I'm really interested in is the market capitalization by theme. And so you've got games at 39%, broad-based at 11.8%, media at 29%, and then hardware at 20%. So my first question, can you, can you go into those themes a little bit? 
Yeah. And how, how was that decision made on, on the allocation to each theme? Yeah. So I think I'll start at kind of the, the higher level. If you imagine starting from scratch, not knowing anything about the esports industry and saying like, how do I, how do I identify which companies are most exposed to esports? I mean, there's very few companies globally that have esports as a, as a line item. Um, it's just, it's more of a theme than it is an exact precise science. So really what we came up with was a rules-based methodology that is screening public filings for all companies globally. So it's screening 8Ks, 10Ks, presentations, press releases for keywords that we've determined relevant to our theme. So like keywords like video game streaming, like competitive gaming, like esports, um, And that gives us a score for all of the companies involved. We then, and I don't want to go too deep in the weeds here because I feel like this stuff loses people. Uh, that determines one, which companies go in. And then two, and this is where we're really different is that determines our weightings as well. So we don't want to just put out a product that's market cap weighted. I mean, let's use the example of Amazon that owns Twitch, the largest game streaming platform in the Western world. If you put Amazon into a, a, a gaming and esports ETF and market cap weighted, Amazon would be like, I'm going to guess like 50% of the, the ETF to us. That doesn't achieve our goal of providing the tools for people to express the view on gaming and esports. So we're, we're doing that. And, and in terms of those four, um, those four kind of categories, uh, I'll just go one by one. So kind of the, the first one you mentioned are the games companies. These are companies that are developing and publishing new intellectual property, new, new game, new games and new titles and new franchises. And I think really important in the world of esports, very different from traditional sports, is because these companies own the IP, they're in a unique position of power to dictate how their game is played and then watched and then potentially shut down. Um, we could get some friends and start to pick up basketball league tomorrow. We can't get a few friends and start a new uh, Counter-Strike league without Valve being, being brought on. So they're in a very unique position of power and they're in the in the driver's seat in terms of monetization, monetizing both playership and viewership of of popular games. Uh, from that standpoint, next group. And, and so, real quick on games, that's that has only it has only become this way recently, right? I mean, um, I heard you talk about your age on Toby's podcast, so I'm going <laughs> to just tell everybody how old you are. You're 30 or 31, and you kept talking about you're dating yourself and how old you are. I'm 30 or 31. I don't feel old. So stop, stop <laughs> talking that way. You made me feel old in that podcast. Um, okay. So the publishers or the game owners, they used to just have to sell the game. And that was like their relationship with, with the, the players. And then maybe people were fans of the company or the game or whatever, but the revenue really ended there. They had to sell the game and then hopefully the number two or the next game that came out was a hit. Um, you know, everyone listening to this might not be super familiar with how the industry has changed. Can you just talk real quick about what has enabled this ongoing monetization and yep. um, the change in revenue for these game producers? Yeah, really? No, it's good. It's a great question. I think really um, what we've seen, and I don't love this term, but it is, it is, it is somewhat accurate. It's kind of the industry shift from being very much so hit driven, very similar to Hollywood, where it's all about putting out your blockbuster title every few years to being more games as a service where 
you now have the ability via technology and online gaming to deliver new content virtually without having to have someone go to GameStop or to order a new piece of hardware or software uh, physically. Now it can all be delivered digitally. And what, what this is, they're kind of similar, but what this has really meant has, it, it's allowed for companies to kind of develop their own economies within individual games and individual franchises where virtual goods, whether it's an outfit for your character or a new dance move, if it's Fortnite, has become like a very uh, big part of, the, of, of kind of these companies' revenue streams. And, and taking that step further, some of the most popular games in the world right now are actually free to play. Like you, anyone watching this right now could go download Fortnite on their PC or download League of Legends, play it for free and never pay the company a dime. But they've figured out that user acquisition is really important. And if you can get people to really fall in love with your game, um, they're actually going to spend money inside of the game, which is like such a bizarre concept for most people. But that's really the, the highest level shift we've seen. Um, the closest thing we used to have, the kind of recurring revenues, and, and, and just to give this a little bit more, more context, a few games that are, are still at the top of kind of the, the world right now are League of Legends, Counter-Strike. These games were released five, 10 plus years ago in some cases, and they're still monetizing like crazy. Um, just think about how powerful that is from like an operating leverage standpoint when you don't need to put R&D into, into as much. I mean, you're, you do, but you're, you're just adding into an existing base rather than developing a full game from scratch. It's really powerful from a monetization profit standpoint. The kind of closest thing we used to have to a very kind of recurring revenue model was like the sports games, where I know for me growing up, I would buy the new Madden every single year the first day it came out. Um, but I would have to go in and buy the, the physical copy. Um, so yeah, it's, it, the industry's really shifted to taking advantage of technology and delivering content virtually. And what that's meant has been more recurring revenues and, and as, as a result, some, some kind of multiple expansion there. Yeah. And, and I didn't mean to interrupt you and get you off the, the theme thing. So we'll get back to that, but that, so, you know, this podcast is to help inform investors across all their interest in all different things. And one of the connections I've made, so I'm a person, I invest mostly in tech and SaaS com- software as a service companies. Um, but I am, I do have some digital entertainment companies as well. But the connection I made in my head is like, wow, this model, and this is what's so interesting to me about investing is like, we could pull things from all these conversations. This model is the same thing that's happened in software, basically, where People used to have to sell licenses or a disc or whatever, but now it's turned to software subscription, which is easily more e- easier to maintain that relationship with their customers and give upgrades and, and see the data and what customers are doing. So it's just fascinating to me that these trends are, are applicable across multiple industries, you know? And I, in a way, I almost think gaming, I don't know, I'd have to look back, but it's almost like gaming kind of led the way here a little bit. And and that's what's so interesting about like fiction and Ready Player One and all these books. It's like, it's fake, but real life comes, like ideas come from those things, you know, and then they get put into real life sometimes. It's crazy. Yeah. I wonder what the analogy would be for free to play and in-game monetization in the software world. Is that like, like open, open source software, right? Where yeah. it's like, you can download it for free, yeah. but then you pay the company for security or uh, premium customer service or whatever. It's, it's, there's definitely parallels there. Interesting. Interesting. 
It makes, I mean, it makes total sense, right? It's taking yeah, advantage yeah. of the same core concept of it, it really is. Yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, I interrupted you, but let, let's keep going um, yeah, down yeah. those, down those themes. Um, and, and, and just to clarify the business models on a company by company basis is going to vary a little bit. Like if you look at just not saying on the games for a second, if you look at take two, um, still more of a hit driven business model that works because they have big immersive games, Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption, that takes a few years to release a new one um, versus EA, which is now shifting towards, you know, FIFA and Madden and delivering new quick updates and, and, and new players. Uh, the next kind of type of company we're looking at are, are what we would consider broadly to be media companies. Um, and these are second derivative forms of engaging with the first form, which is the games themselves. These are streaming platforms, places where people are watching other people play games. They're live events operators, which are temporarily on, on hold right now. They're, in some cases, owners of esports teams, which I didn't really touch on that much thus far. Um, and, and, and kind of those are very different in terms of the business models across the street, but broadly what we would categorize as media companies. Um, the next grouping is, is what we call hardware. Um, and hardware, as you can imagine, you know, gamers are investing in, in hardware the same way golfers are investing in golf clubs. It's, it's to improve your game, whether it's mice or headsets or keyboards. And a lot of times um, these companies are also providing their hardware to professional esports uh, gamers or to professional streamers. Um, they also act as what we would kind of call endemic sponsors. Uh, endemic meaning that they're native to kind of the, the gaming community where they're sponsoring a, a team, they're providing them the gear, and they're, they're also sponsoring that team as well. Um, sponsorship is going to be a big driver, I think, for esports as a whole. Um, you're talking about an 18 to 35 predominant audience. Uh, definitely skews male, at least in the U.S. Globally, it's it very much so more diversified. But it's an audience that advertisers and sponsors want to figure out how the hell do I get in front of these people who aren't watching linear television. Um, and then the last kind of grouping is, is, is less exciting, but it's what we would call our broad-based companies. Not Microsoft, not Amazon. Gaming is too small a part of the story for them to work in through our methodology. This is more Tencent, um, which is called 40 to 50% gaming, probably the most impressive investment portfolio in the games world ever. Uh, C Limited is another fascinating company um, based out of Singapore that, that might be like Tencent 2.0. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, but perhaps. Let's get down into the top 10 holdings as of May 20th, 2020. At the top and the highest weight is um, C Limited, ticker uh, SE. You talked about them a little bit. I guess my question is, is what, what decided that, that weight has like, has, did C come into the ETF at that weight or is it, has it grown because of how well the company has performed? And then will that change once it gets re rebalanced? Yeah, no, great question. Um, it's definitely been, been a lot of it has been the performance. I mean, if you pull up a chart of C, it's it's been incredible. It's actually been incredible for like a year plus now. Um, but it is it what did come in at a relatively higher weight. So um, a lot of people are interested in in C right now, actually for its e-commerce business. But the moneymaker at the company remains by far and away its digital entertainment side of its business. And 
Um, at the core, and I think this is an interesting case study too, and I can touch on that in a second, but I think at the core of C, it, it originally started as a company called Garena, um, which was a game publisher in Southeast Asia. They have contracts to, to, to deliver some third-party content and publish content, Call of Duty Mobile being one of the most kind of notable third-party titles. But most of, the, most of the EBITDA for that business comes from a single game called Free Fire. Uh, which is, for those who are unfamiliar, most are unfamiliar because it's no one plays it in the U.S., um, is what we call kind of a battle royale game, which is the same mode as Fortnite, where you have, I think uh, Free Fire is actually 60, if I'm getting this right, 60 people all in a single map competing against one another in kind of a shooter, uh, exclusively designed for mobile, and also very much so intently designed for older hardware. Older game, excuse me, older smartphones can run Free Fire very, very well in a way that they can't run Fortnite or, or maybe even PUBG the same way. So really what, what Free Fire's done has gone after emerging markets, particularly Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Thailand. It's gone after uh, Latin America. Brazil is, is, has a tremendous Free Fire market. So they went after something that the, the kind of where you could have a iPhone five or six and play this game and, and have a almost a triple A level gaming experience. They did that and they've grown it to a tremendous size business. I think they just reported 80 million daily active users, which is like top, I would say handful of games in the world now. And the reason why it's such a high weighting in our ETF is free fire is as a result of kind of that large community has become probably top two or three mobile esport. And what I mean by that is people competitively playing and people watching those people compete in the world. Um, and that's really that's really how it's how it's got come to to be. I'm not as as wise on the on the other parts of the business that I now have a lot of people excited. I'm more in, I'm focused on the gaming side, but I yeah. will say I will say that I think that go, starting as a gaming company, building a quote unquote user base with younger people and then leveraging that relationship into other business verticals is something that I would expect to see replicated again. Yeah, it feels like Fortnite's kind of doing the doing the same thing there. Um, I don't think they've done that exactly yet, but the, we've seen concerts and Fortnite and all kinds of stuff. Like I could totally see them. I've heard you talk about it too. Um, I could totally see them kind of expanding from games to to other ways for sure. So that's you know that's really interesting about Free Fire is that they intentionally made it for um, lower performance phones. And I'm guessing it's because of the markets that they wanted to get into and, and the data and what types of phones that those consumers have. And it's, it's really interesting from an investment perspective because they're basically building the playbook and the, the they're going to be the industry leader or the potentially the world leader in how to create games for these types of markets and how to monetize them, right? And and that I guess that's a question that pops into my head is like, is that audience or the people that are playing um, with those types of phones, is that the most attractive audience from a revenue standpoint? Probably, probably not right now. But as those company or as those countries develop and and quality of life gets better, they could become much more profitable customers potentially as well. It's really interesting. Yeah, no, I think I, I think you're absolutely right. Like, you're not going to get your highest ARPU from from those parts of the world right now. You're just not. And it's more about scale. And 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 I think 
like building a long-term relationship with the customer where you can introduce new games and new IP to the, that kind of user base that loves Garena and the platform and, and, and all these other things. That's kind of the, but I will say, I, I could be misquoting this, but I think they did a billion in EBITDA for the digital entertainment segment for 2019. So like they figured, they cracked the code on how to monetize at least those 80 million daily actives enough to generate, a, a, to put out a really nice business. Um, the question will be, can they do that for, for more than one game? Because I think 90 plus percent of that segment is all coming from Free Fire, which is really their only self-developed game. Yeah, that's kind of the fear is when's it going to, when's that going to, fizzle out if it does so you know all these games you parachute in why why do people parachute in when are they going to come up with a new way <laughs> for people to to get into the game the battle royale um because fortnite PUBG, and free fire the same way it's crazy i don't know you might we might need to brainstorm after this and come up with something we're going to release our own game um okay <laughs> so uh, another company that is interesting to me and a lot of other people have actually asked about it and I might pronounce the name wrong is um Huaya or did yeah. I say that right? Huya? Huaya? Um Roundhill put out a tweet um kind of just covering their most recent quarter. Um would love for you to just kind of tell us a little bit about that company and then and then what it, how they're doing. Yeah, so Huya falls into kind of what I touched on which is our media bucket. Huya at its core is a streaming platform. So if you're familiar with Twitch and if you're in the US, you can go check out Twitch if you've never looked at it. I recommend you do and see how many people, no matter what time of day it is, are watching certain games, Twitch.tv. Huya is basically branded itself and has become, uh, along with its sister company, Douyu, um, really the, the Twitch of China. Um, and Huya and, and Douyu both are backed by Tencent. So Tencent recently just increased its, its stake in, in Huya um, but Huya's core business has been focused on the Chinese market uh, in terms of being the leader in, in live streaming. Chinese market is about five times the size of U.S. in terms of MAUs for, for live streaming. Um, and, and just a tremendous number of young people in that country that want to consume content. A few interesting things about Huya that people probably don't know is about 40 to 50 percent, probably closer to 40 percent of the revenues are actually coming from non-gaming streams right now. So that is someone doing a cooking stream or a music stream or a you name it type stream. I think we're going to start to see that in the U.S. over time. Um, that's one. Two is the business model between, even though the analogy is there between Twitch and, and Huya, the business model in China is very different. Most of the um, most of the revenues in in the U.S. on platforms like Twitch are from uh, traditional advertising are from subscriptions, are from um, donations. In the Chinese live streaming market, most of the revenues are coming from what, what they kind of call virtual gifting, where you're actually taking currency, renminbi or yuan, whatever you want to call it, trading in that currency for digital currency, uh, and then spending that digital currency on digital goods to give to your favorite streamer. And this is just like something that's very difficult for us to comprehend, but it's it's a large part of their business model. And as you can imagine, going back to operating leverage, you can like you can create as many virtual balloons as, as you 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 like infinity server space is not an issue for that. Um, so it's a very scalable business model. They also own a few esports teams, 
so they own Royal Never Give Up, the League of Legends team. They own the Chengdu Hunters and the Overwatch League. Um, and then finally, what I think could be one of the most interesting things about this, co the, this company is uh, a platform called Nemo TV, which is a subsidiary focused not on the Chinese market, but on kind of the, similar to where C's focus is on these kind of emerging markets that are really the high growth gaming areas. Yeah, and and I understand that trend, you know, even being in the US and there's there's Patreon, which is a, a website where people can create content and get donations and it's become super popular. Um, and there's even things like Substack where people can write, individuals can write newsletters and monetize them or make them free and take donations. And it seems like the world is just moving and especially the United States is moving getting more comfortable with that where they, they know who they're interacting with and they would love to donate to them and, and give them the ability to continue doing what they're doing because they like their content. And then, I mean, at a higher level, we see the craze with celebrities and superstars and all the followers they have on, on their account. So um, I, I could totally see people gifting to, to gamers and hopefully it's normal people like you and me that are the gamers that are getting these gifts that become big, not celebrities that become gamers and make all the money off their existing <laughs> fan base. Um, yeah, no, that's true. At, at its core, you're talking about like the democratization of user generated content, right? Whether yeah. it's Patreon or Substack or, or being a streamer, it's all about allowing people, it's a development of new economies really that are all internet based. Yep. Uh, the one last thing on who I'd point out that's interesting is if you followed the kind of um, game streaming space in the U.S., you heard Ninja signs an exclusive deal to move from Twitch to Mixer. Uh, Shroud does the same thing. All of these guys signing multi-year contracts with uh, platforms that are all happen to be owned by the biggest tech companies in the world, by the way. Um, in China, that's already the case. So all of the big streamers, individual content creators, I don't know if this will ever happen on like a Patreon, but um, are locked into multi-year deals exclusive deals. And, and, and I always, this always brings up an interesting concept to me. And I think I tweeted about it the other day with Joe Rogan switching from Apple to exclusive on Spotify. It's what's more powerful, the platform or the content creators. Um, and I guess it's just too early to tell, but it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. I think Joe Rogan would be a good, good way to get some insight into that is, is who, who follows him from YouTube over to, Spotify and and Anchor and that that's a fast that's gonna be fascinating to watch because I know Anchor just released the ability to do video podcasts so this feels like a way that Spotify is trying to double down on that and grow that and um, that's really interesting so okay uh, we talked about um, C and then Huya which I managed to butcher <laughs> you got in it both, of, both of my <laughs> attempts and you you taught me how to say it. The last one that Roundhill tweeted about is is take two. And this is interesting to me. We talked about it a little bit, but this is another trend, right? Is sports in general. We talked a little bit about the demographic in um, live sports. And I've also heard you talk about how you don't think it's necessarily going to be the same appeal or application of of going to watching digital professional sports or something like that as as some people have talked about. But my question is just more around um where you see this this trend going. So Take-Two has Grand Theft Auto and then NBA 2K. Do you see these these sports platforms and, and games as, as continuing to be like a massive growth opportunity? Or, or what are your views on on live sports and, and esports? Yeah, in terms of 
live sports, and I think I've got, if you watch Toby's, you may have heard me do something similar, but I think there's a handful of sports that are well positioned globally. And I think the key is being global. So soccer, basketball, there's other sports you taught, you said at the beginning that MLB fans are, are, are aging rapidly. Same's true actually for the NFL and the NHL. So I, I think I'm a huge traditional live sports fan. Like I want that to, to stay. And there's certain things that I think will be very difficult to ever replicate in a digital form. Like I, I don't think that you can quite get there yet with where we are with technology. Now, if you want to go see something crazy, there's a new game or not a new game. It's been around for years, but they now have full body VR tracking. Um, if you, if you ever go on Twitch and, and look up VR chat, like full body, like your legs, you can dance, it's like all this stuff in, in VR, like that's getting us really close to ready player one, really close to like, let's just do everything virtually, which is scary. Um, but I'm still bullish on, on the growth of, of traditional sports, but I think it's going to depend sport to sport. Um, in terms of esports, um, I think that the games that are most that are going to do the best, and it's simply a function of having those traditional sports out there, are not going to be the Madden, FIFA, 2Ks that are what we call sports simulation titles. Like if I can go and watch the real thing, I'm going to do that nine times out of ten. So I think, I, although at the beginning I said what I truly believe is that this is, you know, COVID-19 and coronavirus is an acceleration of secular trends, not a short flip up. I do believe that doesn't apply to the increased engagement we're seeing in sports simulation titles. I think that that is very much so uh, something that will continue to grow and grow at a few percent per year. You know, Madden and FIFA have been cash cows for EA, NBA 2K for for Take-Two as well. Um, I just think once kids are able to go outside and play basketball at the park, like it, there's some, that comes back down to earth, like it just does. Um, but but at the highest level, like Take Two is 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 amazing example of of continuing to monetize its games again and again, even though it's still more hit driven than than the others. Like Grand Theft Auto Online is has become like its own version of the the metaverse, similar to Fortnite, and it's continually monetized and monetized. I think they hit a new record for microtransactions in that game. That game released like six years ago. Um, so like a lot of these guys have cracked the code on how to give their audience what they want. And the biggest thing, a lot of the times is letting the community build the game into what they want it to be. So just kind of wrap up this conversation. What, what do you have your eye on most right now for the future as an investor? And then maybe that'll give investors out there an idea of what to watch out for in the industry moving forward. I think in the past, I've usually highlighted mobile, uh, mobile games, which I, I continue to believe is, is kind of. It's that on-ramp for those parts of the world that don't have a PC, don't have an, a console. Like, I, I still truly believe in that. And that's why I think, like, Arena Free Fire is such a smart smart way of building an audience. And then you can leverage that into higher margin kind of products. Um, but one thing I think is really important, and, and it's this is definitely being accelerated, is this concept of a virtual world, of a quote-unquote metaverse, and which company is best positioned to build that world from ready player one in real life or whatever mass nation that takes in our world. Like, I think we're at the point where like something like that, where people spend time in a virtual world, it's going to happen. It's a question of who's going to do it. And I think if you look at the landscape right now, like game companies are by far and away best positioned to be the company that does that. Whoever gets that right. Could that be the next trillion dollar company? Yeah. Why not? Um, 
Now, I don't have an answer on who that is. I think you could say the leaders in the clubhouse are, you know, Fortnite, Roblox, Minecraft, to varying degrees. Um, but that, I think, if you're, depending on what kind of investor you are, like, that's like the 20, 30, 40-year Yeah, vision. I feel like those games, like, you'll be able to walk, like, you'll be playing Minecraft, and you'll be able to walk from your Minecraft fort- fortress into a Fortnite battle one day, and they'll all be this like interconnected world and community, but there's a lot of competing interests there. Your kids um, definitely had you watch Wreck-It Ralph, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So to the, the fire questions or the audience question, I don't know if you're ready for these. So I know the answer to this question. We'll start you off easy. The first question from Daniel Seigel uh, at Daniel Seigel is, does he play Xbox, PlayStation, or PC? He, his reasoning or I asked him what he thinks you play. He said, player capabilities are typically faster and therefore better on PC. So as a finance person slash numbers person slash nerd, <laughs> he didn't say that, I'm adding nerd. <laughs> he imagines that you like those odds and play with that. So I think Daniel thought about this way too much. Yes. He, he overthought yes. it. Yes, I'm an Xbox guy. I'm an Xbox <laughs> guy. I've played some games on PC, but I'm not good enough. So it's like, it's, I want to have fun. It, we didn't even talk about this, but I, I recently, for research for this podcast, right? I. I started playing on Stadia, which from Google, oh, wow. which Stadia, I guess you can play on a con, well, not even a console, but your TV with a controller or on your computer. I've been playing on a computer and it's pretty, it's interesting. And it's crazy. Like what, what Stadia is, is it's like, basically you don't even have to have a console. You don't have to own anything. I go to a webpage Stadia and it's all powered through the cloud from Google, which is insane. We yeah. didn't even talk about that being another trend, which is cloud gaming, but that's certainly one. It's uh. We just don't know when. I think 5G is going to be really important there. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, so maybe we'll talk about that on a, another future podcast when I can take more of your time. Um, I know you're busy. <laughs> uh, all right, last, the last kind of listener question is, and I was kind of wondering about this myself, is uh, from Jose Naharo. I might be saying that wrong. Stocks, with the current news of USA being more strict with Chinese stocks in the market, will this change any thoughts on current holdings? Not sure what you can and can cannot talk about, Will. So if, if you yeah, can't, yeah. that's totally fine. Um, he believes three out of your top 10 in the index, I believe, or maybe in the ETF are Chinese stocks, uh, Huya, Douyu, and Billy. Um, so he's just kind of wondering about, about that and maybe just at a higher level, how you think about the international exposure. Yeah. Um, so I think at, at its core, we're not going to stray away from our mandate of, of kind of delivering that exposure. And if these companies get us closest there, we're going to do that. We're not going to try and be heroes and, and predict. Um, you, you want to talk about something it's very difficult to predict. That's that's uh, kind of geopolitics. But my personal view on it is um, that if you read the rule, apparently they're considering doing this in a few years. Um, and really what they're doing is is making making the kind of uh, disclosures more burdensome on, on the companies that are already out there. If the, if the companies in our portfolio, Huya, Douyu, Billy, YY, um, are able to comply, I actually this maybe this is maybe this is me kind of being too bullish or or, or kind of spin zone, um, but I think if you remove new companies from Chinese companies from listing in the U.S., you actually in a weird way benefit the companies that are already listed in the sense that. If I have a mandate to invest XYZ in China and I need to get my exposure and it's limited to X number of companies versus Y, I could actually seeing it 
kind of eliminating the kind of discount we've seen historically with Chinese ADRs or maybe applying a premium. Um, so I don't think it's something to necessarily worry about. I think, look, like I, I posted this the other day, NetEase is another company too we have in there, which is, which is um, a Chinese ADR. NetEase has 11,000% return since it listed on the NASDAQ, 11,000%. Like, how are we going to delist companies like that? You know how many unhappy rich people there are going to be in the U.S. that have to pay taxes on that? I just don't know how it happened, but we'll see, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's like this same idea about you thinking that making it easier for the companies that are following the rules and already list. It's like kind of the same thing as GDPR, right? It was, it was designed for this privacy thing. But really, it's almost making it harder to compete with the mm -hmm. massive companies like Facebook and Google who have these all this cash flow and lawyers and money to to fight these things. So that's an interesting interesting take on that. It's just me being optimistic, I think, but I <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, cool. So, Will, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. Is there anything you want to leave the world with? We talked about where people can find you, Roundhill.com, or roundhillinvestments.com and then at maybe bullish on Twitter. So is there anything you want to, you want to leave the world with? I'll just leave them with, and I can't share it right now, but I'll leave them with stay tuned for next. I don't know when this will come out, but if it comes out prior to May 27th, May 28th, we're probably going to have our second ETF launched focused on a really interesting sector on one of those two days. So stay tuned. I can't mention anything right now. This is coming out today, the day that you're doing this podcast. And that's just because we move so fast slash I'm super unprepared and unorganized. So you, <laughs> you, you saved the day by coming on this podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Will. I had a lot of fun. Um, hope, hope you did too. And hope everybody out there listening got, got something useful out of this. Yeah, this was awesome. Thanks, Austin. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.